Hey everyone, welcome back to the Resident Review Podcast. Um, this is Whitney Lane. I'm joined today by uh, my co-host, Nick Olek. Um, we are continuing our series that we started last year on Microsurgery Masters, uh, Words from the Experts. Before we kind of take a deep dive into our conversation today with Dr. Haddock from UT Southwestern. Nick, we wanted to chat with you about kind of how things have been going on our service. Oh, it's been so good. It feels so good to be back. I think last time we talked about, uh, you know, I had been in the ICU on trauma kind of all over the place and it's been a while, but I, I think I know how to sew again. Oh, you definitely know how to sew again, please. He was, he was crushing it. We're crushing it on our Duke North service, our reconstructive service right now. Yeah. So good. So, um, Nick, I know last time we were talking about the fact that we were both running, um, this race, which we both completed the Tar Heel 10 miler last weekend. What's your, what's your, what's your review of the race? Oh my gosh. Race was amazing, but, uh, Laurel Hill took a piece of my soul. That's, (laughs) that's for sure. This, this race was, uh, 10 miles as the name implies. Um, and the first, I mean, really seven and a half, I thought were like pretty reasonable. A couple of hills, but they're rolling, felt really good. And I was like, I am cruising. And then that last like mile and a half, my God. I know that Laurel Hill, it's terrible. But Nick and I both crushed it. So, you know, we're pretty happy. Unlike the Duke basketball team, I know last time I jinxed us by saying that we were going to win the national championship and we lost to UNC again, but still proud of the Devils, still proud of Coach K got to the final four in his final year. So always. Yeah. When I, when I listened to our episode back um, earlier this week, when it came out, I, you know, I was like, oof, no, I, I wish that ended differently, but it is what it is. Um, but like Whitney mentioned, we've been doing some uh, awesome cases on our, on our service right now. And we've also been doing some great team bonding the other night. Uh, we did a, a Duke North run club. So we went out, and ran around Durham with the uh, Bull City Running Club. It was awesome. And then we grabbed some pizza. Uh, morale is at an all-time high on the Duke North service. Yeah, Nick, what, um, I know there's some pretty cool cases that we did this week on service. Anyone stand out in particular? Yeah, so we had a case um, actually just yesterday. We had a patient with a, kind of a complicated history but had an upper extremity wound um, that had some exposed vascular graft that needed some kind of reconstruction, but unfortunately, a lot of our local options were gone uh, because of this trauma. So we took a split latissimus um, from his, the ipsilateral side and do a pedicle latissimus without disinserting it from the humerus, perfectly covering the graft um, and really that entire wound. We were able to surface it with a skin graft from the same site that we took the flap. Uh, so no additional donor site. It was awesome. Great case. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, patient looked great this morning on round. So pretty excited about that. One thing we've been doing, you know, we doing a lot of long cases some free flaps. And one thing I always like to think about when we're doing those is how do we get out of this earlier? How do we finish this case sooner? Um, so that Nick and I can go train for our next race. Um, that's, so, that's the age old question. Yeah, exactly. Next, what's your next race and how are we going to train for it when we're doing flaps until late at night? Um, so in that vein, we've invited um, Dr. Nicholas Haddock from UT Southwestern to be our guest host today and speak a little bit more about efficiency in the operating room. 
So, you know, on the topic of efficiency in the operating room today, we're joined by two guests, our uh, guest co-host, Dr. Brian May, and our guest faculty, Dr. Nicholas Haddock. Dr. May graduated from medical school with me at Duke and now is completing his residency training in plastic surgery at UT Southwestern. Next year, he will be moving back to North Carolina, which I'm absolutely thrilled about, uh, to join a private practice in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we're also joined by our faculty guest, Dr. Nicholas Haddock. Uh, Dr. Haddock completed his, completed his medical school training at the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston, after which he moved up to the Northeast to complete his plastic surgery residency at NYU and fellowship in microsurgery at the University of Pennsylvania. After training, he returned to Texas, where he is now an associate professor of surgery at UT Southwestern. And he's well known uh, throughout the plastic surgery community for his techniques in breast reconstruction. And today we've invited him to speak further on operative efficiency in autologous breast reconstruction. Dr. Haddock and Dr. May, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you guys. All right, so to start off, I think you know we've all heard about your amazing work on efficiency in the operating room, efficiency in breast reconstruction. And I think for most people, and especially, you know, at least for me, I can say when I hear about deep flaps in less than four hours, the first thing I want to, I think of, first thing I want to know is how, um, but I want to start with the why. So what got you interested in efficiency to begin with? And when did you start applying this to the operating room and to breast reconstruction? Yeah, uh, great questions. Um, so I think that the, we can start with the, the why. Um, and so early on, uh, you know, I kind of approach things from how do we make things better? Um, and so that applies to really all facets of life. Uh, but certainly in my career, uh, I focus on how to make things better. And there are a lot of different ways we can do that. And when we think about autologous breast reconstruction, uh, certainly time is one of the negatives. So, you know, most of us have had the conversation with patients and you say, well, I can do an implant, it'll take me an hour. I can do a, a deep flap and it'll take me 10 hours. And the patient's eyes kind of get real big and, and they're kind of like, oh, well, I'll just do an implant. It's like, well, so that's a problem, number one. So if we can make those a little bit closer together, then let patients really make a fair determination between what they want. Um, and so that's one, one thing. So if we think about from a patient perspective, um, also certainly, you know, shorter operative times are going to lead to less swelling and better outcomes and people go home quicker. Uh, so that's, that, that's another reason of why we want to be more efficient. And then purely from a, a bias standpoint, a personal standpoint, if I'm uh, more efficient in the operating room, then I can either do one of two things. I can uh, be done earlier in the day and I can hit the golf course if I want to. Um, that is not what I choose to do, um, but, uh, but I could, um, or I can accomplish more in a day so we can, we can get more done. So a typical day, uh, you know, a typical day for me might mean doing two bilateral cases, uh, two bilateral deeps, or even maybe three um, in a day, and, and often other cases uh, throughout that. And it seems like a lot, and it takes a lot of uh, strategy in the sense of scheduling, but it's, a, it's easy to accomplish. And certainly, uh, it, we do it in a very safe way. That's the other thing people worry about is with efficiency, is it safe? And so it, it is in our model. Um, and then to take to the last aspect of why we really ramped things up in the sense of efficiency with COVID. And so when, when COVID hit every, you know, everyone shut down initially. And then we were, we were opening back up and there were concerns where we aren't going to be able to do these operations or the numbers would, you know, go up and down, up and down. And there was a concern we'd be throttled back down. And, and, 
you know, deeps are one of the first things that you could say, well, it's, it doesn't have to be done. You can always do delayed reconstruction. Um, and, uh, you know, that's fine, but we wanted to still be able to do these things and offer it for patients. And so we really focused on it and tried to get more efficient. Uh, at the same time, it's also when we were able to negotiate with our hospital to get out of the ICU, uh, we were able to move to regular room. Uh, that's been something I've been fighting for for the past 10 years. And, and finally, I had a bargaining chip. They needed the beds and I wanted out. So it worked out. Um, and so, so that's kind of the, the end of the why aspect. The other aspect was how, right? That's what you asked. Yeah, certainly. And I think we have a couple of follow-up questions for that. I think we can dig a little bit into the how, um, you know, in more detail, but sure. uh, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I think, um, you know, everyone wants to know how, especially as, um, I'm now into my more senior years as a resident and figuring out how to do the perforator dissection more quickly, figuring out how to do the MAM dissection more quickly, um, I think is what a lot of what I'm thinking about at this point in my training. Um, so I'd love to hear from you in terms of how you think through a deep harvest in a stepwise fashion. And, you know, at each step of the way, how do you think through improving your efficiency um, in the operating room so that you're able to do two bilateral pieces in a day? Yeah. Um, so I think it all begins before the operating room. Um, and your decision-making. And uh, so we believe strongly in CTAs. Um, I know that's still debated. We have some, certainly some literature on that from our group that would show that it's uh, helpful. Uh, you know, I spent time at Penn and they, they disagree with that. Um, and, and some of them are very efficient surgeons and, and can and do uh, very efficient operations. But if you have a plan and you go directly to a perforator, um, you know, then you're, you're going to be faster. You don't have to look at either look at the lateral row, you look at the medial row and you do that right off the bat. You don't, you don't elevate all the skin. You don't make all your skin incisions. You go directly to a perforator depending on medial lateral and sense of what you elevate. Um, so we are typically to the heart of the case, the heart of the perforator dissection within 15 minutes. Um, and that's a huge difference. I think that most people don't do that. I think uh, many people are doing an hour or so just to get there. And so there's a couple of negatives to that. One's time. Uh, we mentioned that. The other is blood loss, right? You open more incisions, you have more blood loss. You have more, uh, you know, accessory losses of fluid, uh, which is going to increase more, more traumatic area, more swelling, all these type things. But we get to the decision. The decision is made and we have started perforator uh, dissection on average at 15 minutes. Um, and, and that's one of the probably the biggest differences, uh, that we have. And, and that's really based on CT and we trust our CTs and then we do a dissection from there. Um, the, the next how, um, is, you know, the technical aspects are kind of hard to discuss because it's, it's so technical, right? Um, so without showing, it's kind of hard to say, oh, well, this is what I do with my hands and whatnot. Um, but I think the next aspect is optimizing your team. Um, and certainly that plays into the scrub tech and the nurses in the room. And, and you know, we used to have more varied teams and we used to be in a situation where, you know, you're looking for instruments and things like that. But these days, you know, one of the advantages of you're doing two a day, you do a lot. And so because you do a lot, everybody knows what we want. They know how we're going to do it. And, you know, it, it kind of, one of these systems, once you get it in place, it just builds itself. And so most of our scrub techs, I don't even have to ask for something. It just ends up in my hand because they know what I'm going to do because I just did it an hour before. Um, and so that's certainly a big benefit. Um, and then, and then uh, pass from that, the team is, you know, you've got 
and Dr. May on here, uh, one of our chief residents, and then we usually have a micro fellow, maybe a junior resident in the room. We optimize our team. They're very involved. Uh, they get involved in the operation. People also wonder, you're in a teaching center and you're doing this so fast, people must not be, the residents must not be involved. Um, you know, we don't let them do anything is the, is the fear, and that's not really true. Um, in fact, they probably get to do more because we do more. They just don't do every step in one single operation. Um, and so that's, that's one of the things you have to think about. I don't do every step in one operation, um, but, you know, we have everyone working at once. And so that includes, you know, my partner, Smit Tiosha, we do all of these together. Um, and so the two of us work in concert plus the other two team members. Um, and that, that's probably the, the biggest thing. Um, we wrote that paper, the ED paper that was in PRS Go. And one of the concepts we tried to really highlight in that was hidden time, where if we have four people working the entire time, things go faster. It's not, it's not rocket science, but people don't do it, mm -hmm. right? And, and it's a little bit harder than you might think because we have, we have trainees, right? So if it was four senior surgeons and you don't worry about one person over here or one person over there, but we have to manage the whole room and we have to keep that process going and keep it safe. Um, and so we, you know, we expect, uh, excellent results. We expect a 99% plus a success rate. And, you know, we expect the muscle not to be damaged. We expect nerves to be saved and we expect a superior aesthetic result. Um, and so everyone falls into the system and they usually produce. Um, so it works. I would so, add to that as well, that I think that from a resident standpoint, you know, being having gone through the era where we were timing our operative steps and, you know, having to really focus on improving our operative times, it actually helped me to be a better surgeon. And I think that helps most of the residents because when you're training, you know, you're still trying to find your competence and what you're doing at each step of the way, it's really easy to kind of get lost in the weeds and kind of get tunnel vision and end up spending more time than you need to on something. So by being timed, it kind of helped me to focus on what's the important part, what's the not important part, where can I improve my speed? So, and that's helped throughout the re entire rest of my surgical techniques, not just deeps. It's focusing on where can I improve my time? Where am I wasting time? What needs to be done and what doesn't need to be done? Building off yeah. of that like comment that Brian just made about where, where you can waste time and where you can't waste time, like the fast parts of the case should go fast and the slow part should be slower. Um, I have, you know, I was wondering in terms of when you choose your perforator, do you always choose just to base your deeps off of one single perforator or how often do you choose more than one um, perforator for your deep flaps? Uh, so that's the common conception is so you're doing them fast. You must be taking one perforator. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, our, our data would show that we typically take two perforators, um, but we'll take three or even four. Um, and sometimes we take more than one row even. We'll do apex flaps, uh, you know, or you cutting the pedicle and putting it back together. It's debatable depending on how much muscle you're going to damage if you really need that. And that's a different topic. But um, we do not make decisions solely for efficiency. We make decisions to have the best outcome. And so we will pick more perforators if that is appropriate. Um, there are some surgeons that choose, you know, the single perforator that's most eccentric in the flap because it's easier to work with and it's faster. That is not our approach. We want a great result. So if it takes longer, we will take longer, but we have a system where that doesn't typically happen and we're able to get these things done pretty quickly. Um, so no, we don't just do one perforator. Uh, typically we do two. Uh, I've watched your, your video on PRS um, about the IMA dissection, very helpful in preparing for cases. Um, and also, uh, you know, I, I know the title of the paper was talking about dissection in 15 minutes, which definitely is a 
uh, at least for me, definitely a goal to look towards and something uh, very far away from for me at this point. Um, I was wondering if you could take us through your approach kind of step-by-step or at least from a high level um, and any advice you have for people starting out to to learn that part of the case. One thing I'd like to say about it is the case was very specific, of course, because it was a a rib harvest and we got a little bit of uh, feedback uh, in editorial comments uh, following that about, well, you're harming people, you're taking the rib all the time. Uh, We don't always take the rib. Um, We take the rib when the rib's appropriate to be taken. Um, we're not a zealot one way or the other. Um, so we tend to tailor the operation to the individual. So for instance, if we're doing a BMI of 20 pat flap, then we're probably going to spare the rib because there's a chance that that defect could be exposed. But if we're doing a BMI of 40, um, we're probably not going to do that unless there's a big inner space. Um, and then certainly we do stack flaps and things like that. And in those situations, we're going to take the rib. So that caveat. Other than that, you know, the when we did that, it was very early on in kind of this process of analysis. And and the term that that I use is I talk about a lot of sufficiency, um, and it's not my term. It's uh, it's deliberate practice. Um, and so if you've ever read uh, Anders Ericsson's books on that, I highly recommend them in the sense of trying to seek expertise. And so that's kind of my thought process of how I approach things. And, um, and that goes to the breaking things down. And that's what we did with the rib. We broke things down into, you know, uh, clearly defined steps. And, you know, then you can start looking at, you know, how long does it take you for this step and this step, as uh, Dr. May said a second ago, it helps you really focus and, and improve. Um, so in the sense of how do people get better at the rib, I can tell you, number one, it's exposure. Uh, 99% of the times, the first thing I do when someone else has been working on a rib and I take over is I change the exposure. And it's a little simple like this, this, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, see, now all of a sudden you can see everything. And that's it. Um, and so the mistakes people make is they start too lateral and then you don't get the retraction to open the field or they just don't get the retractors in good position. Um, and so uh, that's kind of my main thing is getting exposure and then my, I tend to not change instruments. Um, I don't know that I would recommend people in training do that. Um, so my number one instrument these days, I have either a Gerald or a uh, Gerald with teeth or an Adson teeth in my left hand. And I have a cautery in my right hand. And I can do nearly the whole operation with that, um, both from rib and from flap harvest. Um, that is not, that's, that's something I would do once you've done a whole bunch. But uh, that does save time. Every time you ask for something, every time you look away from the field, you lose focus, you, you know, it changes your kind of approach. But that's it. It's exposure and then getting into the right plane and, you know, safely lifting the perichondrium and getting underneath. And then once you see the vessels, I typically will slide something underneath like a cottonoid. Uh, and then you could actually use cautery because you're protecting the vessels. So you just cut the perichondrium and then you kind of open it like a book. And then you expose whatever you need for the case that you're doing. I think that, um, you know, that's something I've no- definitely noticed is when I get stuck in cases, my attending comes in and the first thing they do is change the exposure. And all of a sudden it makes it so much easier. But building off of what you said on deliberate practice, it's, I love the Erickson books. I think that Peak is a really um, kind of changed my thought process in terms of how I think through training as a surgeon in training and plastic surgery and a microsurgery specifically. As an attending, how do you think, and Brian may be able to comment on this, um, how do you foster an environment that allows your trainees to learn 
in this efficiency model and kind of how do you set the expectations as far as um, the cases that from the onset in terms of what the goals are for learning it for the trainees? I may not be the best at that in the sense of the communication um, pre-surgery, but uh, I at least try to do that throughout life and throughout the rotation. We do, people end up in one spot versus the other. And so, you know, someone might be on, uh, standing at the chest or someone might be standing on the abdomen. And then that certainly plays into what people are going to be doing, of course. And then microsurgery is, is pretty clear. Uh, my, uh, hopefully, and maybe Dr. May can comment, but um, hopefully I inspire people to think this way. Um, that's certainly what I, what I want to do. Um, in the sense of trainees and, and to the point that was made by, uh, by Dr. May, it's not just deeps, right? I mean, he, he may not do deeps in practice. He may, he may do other things, but it, it but there, you can do better in most things we do. Um, and you know, if, if we get to a point where it's like, oh, I've solved this problem, I'm a plastic surgeon, I, I got it. And then you know, you're kind of giving up, right? I mean, we should be constantly improving. Um, we haven't solved this and, and we probably never will. Um, so we just keep trying to get better. And, and that's what I hope uh, I inspire the trainees to do. Uh, that may not answer your question completely in the sense of individual acts, but maybe maybe Dr. May can answer that a little better. Yeah, I definitely think, you know, we are constantly pushed by you to be better. So I, I would say that that's very accurate. From the perspective of, you know, what like communication and what are the tasks that everyone's assigned to, um, I think the number of flaps that we do in general that Dr. Haddock performs he is extremely confident with pretty much every aspect of the operation, which means that if we're faltering, we're not really worried that he's going to be able to take over and fix a problem, which gives us a lot of autonomy to do our work and try and if we're on the rib, we can go ahead and do the rib. And, you know, if something bad happens, he's going to swoop in and he's going to fix the problem, but he lets you fumble and he lets you struggle to get better and better. Same thing on the abdomen. You know, if you're down there, it's either him or uh, our other faculty, Dr. Teosha, and they let you work and they let their and they watch you and they're observing while they're helping, but you're still doing the majority of the flap dissection. So, and that kind of is discussed pre-case. The resident decides, you know, okay, we know that Dr. Haddock's gonna be up here starting on the rib, you know, who's gonna be where? And then it just kind of as a discussion amongst residents and fellows, who's gonna be doing what? And that again kind of stands throughout the case. How do you think that we as residents residents can apply deliberate practice to our training. Do you think there is roles for kind of similar to how you've tracked your outcomes in uh, breast reconstruction and timed everything and, and developed that model? Is there something similar we can do as residents, whether it's simulation in the micro lab or in the OR? Any ideas there? Yeah, I think that you'd have to have buy-in from faculty you're working with to really get into the timing uh, mechanism. Uh, some faculty believe in this. Some people uh, believe it or not, are still kind of anti, you know, this kind of progress. Um, I, I think it matters. Uh, so obviously I do it. Um, and, and Dr. Teosha buys in completely. So we, we both do it. Um, but, you know, hopefully your training system is built for it. Uh, if you think about the practice of medicine, it, it's, it is exactly deliberate practice and it should be. Um, and if we're not doing it that way, we're actually failing. Um, and so if you, if you read those books, um, you know, it, you know, Brian just mentioned, uh, you know, getting out of your comfort zone, that's one of the tenets, right? We've talked about breaking things into steps and, and getting immediate feedback. Well, immediate feedback is, you know, sometimes how long does it take you? 
And and we get immediate fact with, feedback with everything we do. You're doing a rib dissection and you and you have also a branch. Well, that's that's feedback. You know, you just made a mistake, right? Um, and so it should be built into everything we do. You may not have the ability to put a time timer up on the wall, but I encourage you. Um, there's no harm in that. And, you know, it, attendings can get better. I've done it with breast reductions. Our breast reduction times have dropped substantially since uh, we did that a little bit, you know. And, you know, it's not a complex operation, but it's it's got clear steps, right? You do this, you do this, you do this. And you put a clock on the wall and it's not about like a race or anything like that, but you see kind of what should be done. And for a trainee comparing to an attending, I'm, I'm a my hands move fairly quickly. You know, I, I'm not a careless surgeon, but I, but I move and I'm constantly moving forward. And, you know, so a resident can see why well, I did a breast reduction in 40 minutes, um, you know, and, you know, the person on the other side, how long did it take them? And, and they can see each step, you know, it's the same type of thing. So you kind of see what is really obtainable, where should we be striving toward? Um, so I think, you, you know, things like that are good for training, but you got to have buy-in. So uh, I encourage you to try and do that. Dr. Haddock's inspired me to, every time I'm planning, you know, we have our resident cosmetic clinic, anytime I'm planning a case or going through a case and writing my case outline, I put estimated times down next to each kind of section of the case so that I can at least estimate how long it's going to take me. And then I look at the clock and kind of figure out, am I meeting that? Am I beating it? Like, where is it? Where am I getting hung up? And how can I kind of improve that portion of things? It's, it's, it's a great thought. I'm glad you said that um, because it's a great thing to do because one of the first things that everyone does when they get out in practice, you have to book your cases. And at some centers, they'll give you an average. At some centers, they'll let you pick your time. And, you know, you can come into hospital X and you can say, well, I'm going to do a breast reduction and it's going to take me six hours. But you know what? If it takes you five hours, you look like a rock star. If it takes you seven hours. All of a sudden, everyone's like, what's wrong with this person? They're a slow surgeon. So it's all about managing the expectations and that may be an extreme example, but, but, but it is right. So if you book a free flat for three hours and it takes you five, people are going to be like, what's wrong with them? But five is pretty reasonable for a lot of cases. So, so knowing your times and having some expectation of that is real important when you're starting off. And most people don't. I love that concept. I feel like a lot of these um, articles or books that I've read on efficiency a lot of them, I try to think about how it could be applied to surgery and medicine, and there's a bit of a gap there. Uh, but hearing you speak about this and, and Brian, you as well, it's, you know, these are some concrete things that we can do to start working in that direction. I love that. Nick, next free flap, we're going to time it. I'll bring the see clock. Long, yeah. See how long we can get before our attending comes and takes back over. It's the, it's the Google timing. Just throw it up on the wall on the big screen and just yeah. sit there and let it, let it go. <laughs> so as well, some of our final questions, uh, I just want to ask you, you know, We've talked a lot about different parts of efficiency and surgery. What if, you know, if I'm going out into practice tomorrow by myself, what's one thing, it, one concrete thing that you would recommend as the first step to take? Um, one like concrete change that we could take that would improve our overall efficiency in doing deep flaps. I mean, I, I think it goes back to what one of the initial things I said is, is to get a team. You know, it, there's, there's a number of reasons why having a team approach to things is beneficial. And I, I'm very lucky. Uh, Samitiosh and I did not, I wasn't hired. He was here before me and he was, he didn't train doing deep. So he was kind of learning and kind of finding his way and doing uh, deep flaps and, and he didn't really do perforator flaps. And what happened was uh, I got fairly busy on my own. We found out we were working next to each other and doing the same things. And then uh, I was fortunate. I knew how to do PAPS and he needed a patient to have a PAPS. So he asked me to help. And then it kind of blossomed and we became a partnership. 
100% luck. Um, but there's so many benefits to that. One of them is efficiency that we've talked a lot about. The other is it's more fun. You know, you can do microsurgery on your own. And, you know, I, I could probably go and do a deep flap and maybe finish in six hours or something like that even. But I would be, I would burn out. I would not be able to do that forever. And I think it's hard for people to do 10 hour, 12 hour flaps uh, to not burn out. Um, and when you have a team, it's, it's fun. I think, you know, and Dr. May would probably say we run a fun OR. Um, it's serious and we expect again, great results, but it's fun, you know? And, and I think that's probably the biggest thing when you're starting off, if you can do that hard to do, um, like I said, sometimes it's luck. Um, but if you really want to do microsurgery for a living, um, and not, not do the whole, like, I'm going to do it for a little while and then I'm going to transition into this instead. Then I think building a partnership is really the best way and kind of working on that system to get that system in place. Because when you start off, you won't be that busy and you have time to kind of build the system of what you want to do. I think that's some great advice, especially looking towards eventually graduating from residency. <laughs> yes. When you started out, uh, you know, on this process and trying to improve your outcomes and efficiency and all the things we discussed, as far as getting your staff on board, getting your, your resident team on board, was this a stepwise approach or did you kind of have, you know, a, a meeting or a, some kind of presentation to them say, hey, hey, this is what we're trying to do. This is what it's going to take from everyone. Well, so our, our residents are good because they'll fall in line kind of with whatever we tell them to do. That's the beauty of residents. Um, they don't really have a choice. <laughs> Pretty sure you just walked in one day and said, put the timer up on the wall, ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, but from a, you know, we did kind of ease into it. So, because we've done a couple of projects uh, like this where we time things. And so our first project was actually a harder one. Um, and that was because we timed, uh, in multiple settings. So we timed, uh, like myself doing things. We timed kind of a resident with the faculty supervising and helping. And then we timed over at our County hospital, you know, some residents kind of on their own with, with supervision, of course, we always have supervision, but, uh, less direct supervision. And so that was actually the more challenging thing. Um, to get buy-in because everyone, people get nervous about being timed. It puts you, you know, again, getting out of your comfort zone, it adds a point of question there. And people are like, well, I don't want to be embarrassed, right? Because my buddy was faster than me. And, and it, it changes that dynamic. When a, when a third year does something faster than a fifth year, it's kind of like, oh, wait a second. Like, what, what, wait, that's not right. Um, so it, it, you know, innately there's competition, which we're not trying to do but it makes you pay attention. Um, and so there was a little bit slowness to buy in from that. But then when we were timing ourselves in our specific OR, our staff were great. Um, they usually fill out the sheets. It now depends on the staff. Some are more than happy to do it and some kind of roll their eyes when we say we're timing. But they're generally, I think, I think if you, if you build this, a, a system where you get respect and people know you're doing this to improve your outcomes, you're doing this ultimately to help people, then people buy in. And so one of our nurses actually made the sheet. Uh, the, we have a sheet where we time all of it. Uh, it used to be, I mean, it's painstaking for me to do this because I, I put it all into Excel actually. But one of, uh, one of them actually printed out a sheet for us, made it very easy. We used to do it all on individual paper and things like this. And uh, so, so they did buy in and they helped us do it. Yeah, that's great. And uh, you know, we appreciate you and your team paving the way on this. So if, if one of us in practice want to you know, move in the same direction, we can show them your studies and say, hey, look how great this works. Look at the outcomes. And uh, it's really great work. Yeah, I, I kind of believe we can all do better. 
um, certainly we could just be pushing ourselves and trying to get, you know, sub two hour deep laps and, and whatnot. And, and that's all great, but, um, you know, there's no reason to, to hide, you know, this work. I think it's good to help and we all help each other and push and we all get better. Well, on that note, I think, uh, thank you for joining us today on the resident review podcast. This has been really enlightening. I think uh, it's given us a lot to strive for as far as, both efficiency and safety within an operating room setting um, for our deep flap patients. So with that, I will conclude and hopefully you'll join us on our next uh, Flapcast podcast um, coming up hopefully here in the next couple of weeks. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com. 